Greetings, everyone. This is Greg Drevenstedt, Editor-in-Chief at Writer Magazine, and your host for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast. Our guest today is Scott A. Williams, who has been a regular contributor to Writer for two decades. A lifelong New Englander, Scott is a storyteller. His writing reflects the insights of a regular guy with a keen sense of observation and a passion for exploring on two wheels. Scott's motorcycle touring features are less about turn here and then turn there, and more about the culture of the regions he rides through and the people he meets along the way. His columns consider the writer's experience, viewed through the lens of his personal encounters. Known as Bones since he was a little kid, Scott has been a Writer Magazine subscriber for years when it occurred to him, hey, I'm a writer and a writer. I should write for writer. So 20 years ago, he made a pitch to then-editor Mark Tuttle, and since then, he has written nearly 100 pieces for what he will tell you is still his favorite magazine. Thanks, Scott. We had a great conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it, too. Thanks for listening. Hey, Scott. Welcome to the show. Hey, hey, Greg. How you doing? Doing well, doing well. So uh, I'm in Southern California. You are in Western Massachusetts. You're in Wilbraham. Is that correct? That is right. The home of Friendly Ice Cream and not a whole lot else. Friendly, what, the, the, the company Friendly's Ice Cream? Yeah, it's, it's made in a factory about three miles from where I live. Oh, right on. So part of the reason I wanted to interview you is you've been writing for Writer Magazine for a long time, uh, longer than I've been on staff at the magazine. How long have you been Contributing articles to Writer Magazine. Uh, it'll be about 20 years. Wow. It was, uh, it was kind of funny that Writer Magazine was my favorite magazine. I read it cover to cover every month. And, you know, I've been a, a writer professionally uh, writing about things in addition to motorcycling for my whole career. And one day suddenly dawned on me, gee, I'm, I'm a writer and I'm a writer. So I should write for writer. And you know, so I, I did what you typically do if you are trained in journalism like I was. And you've got a story idea. You make a, a formal pitch. So I put together a query, um, sent it to Mark Tuttle, who is the editor, and said, Mark, here's my idea about a ride I'm going to be doing in uh, the mountains of North Carolina. Uh, I'm going to focus on, on finding ribs. So it was all about ribs and roads. And I got a letter back from Mark that said, we like your idea. Uh, we'll consider it on speculation. And uh, so I, I went and had the experience and took the photographs and wrote the story and submitted it to Mark and uh, he accepted it. And that was the beginning of what's been close to a hundred stories now that I've done for Ryder over the years. Wow. That's a lot. So I kind of want to break this down a little bit because I imagine there are people that listen to the podcast uh, that read the magazine that are kind of curious what it's like to write for a magazine. I know for me, like when I started working for the magazine, I hadn't contributed a story to Rider or any other motorcycle publication before. But like you, I had some writing experience. I had done some work in the professional world. And so it was more business type writing, but I at least uh, had some publications and, and so forth. So I knew how to put something together. But writing about motorcycling, at least you've done uh, mostly travel stories. You're talking about riding in the Appalachians and, and roads and ribs. You've written articles about all different kinds of places that you visited, but you've also written some more kind of personal essays and observations. But what you just mentioned was when your initial query to Mark was you kind of had a hook. Like it wasn't like, hey, I'm just going to go ride in the Appalachians. I would like to send you a story. You had this hook of like roads and ribs. So you were going to visit different, um, I don't know how you found them, but different barbecue restaurants that that's the ribs I assume you were referring to, right? Barbecue ribs. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so like, that's like how you came up with a pitch. That's, that's an important thing. You need to have a hook when you pitch a story to somebody. Right. Um, among the teachers of writing I had over the years, uh, one of them was Mr. Spencer in high school, and he was really big about being specific. 
that got drilled into my head. College professor, the same way, just drilled it. You need to be specific. So when it comes to coming up with an idea, um, it needs to be a specific idea and say, here's the idea that I'd like to describe. Here's where I'd like to go have that experience. And you always need to write to magazine pieces with the the readers of the magazine in mind. You have to write it for the audience. And writer uh, attracts a lot of people from um, mostly around North America, but around the world too. And they all have motorcycling in common, but they're not the same kind of, of readers that might to read other motorcycle magazines. There's a, an emphasis on actually riding bikes and going places and seeing things. It's not only about the hardware or about the business end. So you have to find the, the right angle that's going to give the people that subscribe to Rider Magazine something that uh, makes it worth their while to pick up the magazine and read it. And well, since I'm somebody that's subscribed to Rider for, for years before it ever dawned on me that I should actually write for them, um, that was actually an easy transition for me to make because you know, what kind of things would I like to read? I like to eat. You know, despite the fact that I'm skin and bones, I do love to eat. And uh, that first story was about, about ribs and roads. And I like to include places that I encounter uh, for restaurants along the way. And uh, it's a, a fun way to make uh, make the riding experience more interesting by having a, a goal in mind. Where are we going to find a good slice of pie today? Right. Or where... Are we going to get um, a good breakfast? Is there a place that will serve us breakfast in the afternoon or barbecue? We certainly love barbecue. Right. Well, so, you know, one of the interest, one of the things about, again, and this is just kind of more advice generally, you know, I worked for Mark Tuttle for many years. You, he was uh, your editor for the magazine and then uh, made the transition when I took over for Mark. And um, from a, an editor standpoint, you know, when you pitch a story, you know, the hook is important, but also the writing process. And this is something that I'd really like to sort of put out there is that when you're writing a travel story, as you just said, it needs to be, you got to keep your audience in mind and keep their interest. Is that a travel story that is basically, I went on this road and then I turned on that road and I stopped here and I slept there and so forth. And it ends up being almost like a set of, of riding and of, of route instructions or something like that. Is that that part, I mean, you can have a component of that in your story, but there really should be a sort of a narrative where you're taking somebody on the trip with you. You're not telling them how to follow your route, but you're actually giving them the experience of what this ride is like. So the scenery, the people that you meet, the the weather and and sort of the challenges that may come along with that, whether you got caught in a rainstorm. All all those things. I I think it's important to tell a story. Right. um, That, well, for example, when I was uh, working on the, a story about spreading my aunt's ashes in North Carolina. That was a very personal experience for me. She had uh, made a request that uh, her ashes get spread in the mountains of North Carolina, which is a place I love to ride motorcycles. And I offered to, to do that for my family and brought a friend along uh, who rides with me a lot. And um, so, yeah, that story was about some really awesome roads that we were on, but it was very much more a personal experience about providing uh, an important last request for a lady that meant a whole lot to me. That's a very different kind of story than one I did uh, more recently, although it's somehow strangely it involves graveyards twice. <laughs> um, um, there's a piece I did called Dead Reckoning, which was all about uh, finding roads in my own neck of the woods. I mean, none of these places were more than uh, maybe 60 or 70 miles from where I live. But uh, I, I used my dad's old style of, Gee, I wonder where that road goes. 
to try to piece together graveyards, which were actually an academic interest area for him. He was a college professor and he, he loved old New England graveyards and dragged us around to them when uh, my sisters and I were little. And I think that that helped to make exploring part of who I am because uh, I did it with my dad from an early age. And and he his attitude was, gee, well, we can always turn around. And I've done that a whole lot of times. Uh, but uh, just sort of dawned on me, maybe I could re-approach the, um, the the kind of things my dad did with me as a kid, but look at it from an adult's standpoint. And I did it on motorcycle and it was a whole lot of fun and encountered some interesting people along the way that was wondering what I was doing in a, a graveyard with a motorcycle, number one, and a big camera, number two. I, I encountered a cop along the way at uh, traffic detail and he was just making small talk and wondering what uh, what I was doing. I said, well, tell you the truth, I'm I'm out riding, looking for old graveyards. And he's like, what, on purpose? <laughs> he wasn't quite sure why I was going to do that. But yeah, absolutely on purpose. But I mean, all these these stories that I, I do for Rider in particular, I, I certainly involve components of the, the ride itself because I, I, mean, I love to ride a motorcycle. Every time I get on a bike, it's just, it's, uh, I mean, I love the, the speed and motion and the leaning into turns and the wind in my face and being part of the environment. That's just that's why I ride a motorcycle, but then I have to go somewhere and, and recount the experience that I have. I always have a, a camera with me, uh, whether it's my phone camera and phone cameras these days take some pretty good pictures. If you use high resolution and, and think about the composition and the lighting and all, but if I'm going to go on a longer trip, I bring my DSLR camera with a long lens and I'm always ready to take pictures and you know, have the camera with you because when you see something and the camera's back on the bike, it sometimes is too late to go back and get it. Uh, and I always have a notepad. Uh, I guess I'm old school enough that I do like to, to write down some notes, although you can certainly take notes on your phone too. One of the things that I like to do is when I, I meet somebody, especially somebody I've never met before, and I'm a pretty talkative guy, so I can walk up to anybody and strike up a conversation. Um, if I have an interesting conversation where somebody asks me an interesting question or perhaps gives me a little bit of, of local insight about the area where I'm riding through that that might be useful. I write it down and before I go back uh, with my bike and leave, before I get dressed up and go on the ride further, I, I write notes down and keep track of that sort of thing. That means that uh, at the end of the day or sometime further down the road where I'm looking for um, ideas for a story, I say, hey, remember that time I met that guy, Greg, by the side of the road and we were talking about dogs or whatever, um, that I can go back and find those notes and that can help to make a story that much more interesting. Well, you make a good point is being able to bring in, if, if somebody is disciplined enough to, to take some notes, you can reconstruct a conversation and add that into a story as part of your narrative. And I have to say, that's one of the things about what we all have in common is, is a, is a desire and, and uh, enjoyment of riding motorcycles, but there's also the connections that you make with people, whether it's the, the person that you're, if you've got a riding buddy, if you meet somebody at a restaurant. So stories of, you know, about, you know, people that you've met and people that you've talked to really add a lot of color and depth to a story that goes beyond just, you know, again, just kind of simple description. There's that kind of old saying when it comes to writing that sort of show, don't tell, you know, give somebody illustrate an, an experience or an interaction with someone and don't just sort of break it down into sort of like, you know, this happened and that happened and this happened and that happened, but really sort of illustrate an experience because as right. much as, as much, it's almost like you're, you're being a reporter, um, not so much hard news, but you are reporting on the experience that you had. 
Right. And yeah, think about the the reasons why you might interact with somebody. When you're riding by yourself, it seems like people are a lot more willing to approach you. It's my experience anyway, that when I'm by myself, people are a lot more likely to walk up and say, hey, out for a ride today, beautiful day. Or, hey, you're out for a ride today. Why? It's pouring rain. (laughs) Or people will look at my license plate and say, Massachusetts, how did you get to Tennessee? I said, well, I I rode here. I said, really? Wow, that's amazing. I said, well, there's people I know that ride across the country. And I go up to Canada and uh, it, it, it sparks a conversation. But when I'm writing a story, that little interaction I had with somebody can can be part of the story because that's what's happening to me while I'm on a bike. People are finding a reason to talk to me or I'm finding a reason to talk to them. Um, people you'd meet at restaurants, at gas stations, at, at scenic areas, maybe you pull off someplace because there's a, a vista that uh, seems like you want to check it out while you're looking at a beautiful view. So is somebody else. And uh, sometimes people just want to know where you're from and uh, or what kind of bike do you have or now, there's the people that uh, say, oh, you ride a motorcycle? Well, what kind of Harley do you have? And I said, well, actually, I, I don't. I'm riding a BMW. Oh, BMW makes motorcycles? Since when? <laughs> said, well, it's a lot longer than they made cars. Exactly. Um, you never know who, what people are going to say. You know, sometimes when you're spending a lot of time with other people that ride motorcycles, and lots of my close friends are motorcycle riders too, you don't always remember that we're a really small chunk of the of the motorized public in America. Was it 3% or something like that of, right. of vehicles that are registered are, are motorcycles? That means that the large majority of people may not really have any experience with motorcycles. So you know, when I start talking to somebody, if I can provide a little bit of, of knowledge about what motorcycle riders are about, you know, I, I try to do that. I try to be an ambassador. Um, I want to be the kind of person that when someone says, gee, you know, hey, there goes a motorcycle. Remember that guy we were talking to? You know, give people a, a reason to be thinking positively about people that are on motorcycles. And maybe that helps us out somewhere down the line. Sure. Yeah. Well, you've written about that. I mean, again, you've, in addition to some of your travel stories, uh, you've had some observational pieces and you had one recently called Perceptions. And it was about uh, stopping to help a, a woman who had a flat tire. She was in a minivan. She had a daughter with her. But you also didn't want to, you know, uh, you maintain a respectful distance because she, she would seem like uh, she was initially hesitant. She was on an abandoned road and you're a guy on a motorcycle and, and that you just basically stayed there nearby within, you know, sort of, you know, you could speak at a distance to her, but you waited until a police officer came by because you're a family man. You were concerned that, you know, if, if your wife and when your daughter was still living with her with at home, if they were uh, stuck somewhere that you would hope somebody would look out for them, you know, uh, but also maintain a respectful distance where that's one of the things with, with motorcyclists, like there still is that, that perception that motorcycle, well, you know, motorcycles are dangerous and therefore the people that ride them must be dangerous. So, yeah. That's interesting that the, the, a friend of mine, also named Greg, um, had that sort of experience happen to him where he he met somebody that had a broken down car and he's he's also a family guy and he pulled over and helped out. He told me that story around a campfire one night and it just kind of lodged in my memory. So when I was riding, I was way up in far northeastern Vermont, the region they call the Northeast Kingdom. And you know, I'm on a, a main road, but you don't have a whole lot of traffic going by up there. And so here's this car with a, a flat and just uh, I could see through the windows that it looked like there were child seats in the back. And, you know, I slowed down, rode by and yeah, sure enough, as a young woman with a kid in the car and I just didn't uh, feel right. Not making sure that she was going to be okay, that they were going to be okay. So all I did was just say, you know what, I'm just going to stay up there where you can see me. I'm just going to have a snack or something. And, and when 
when help that you trust arrives, I'll be on my way. And it turned out that it was a state cop came by in, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. And I waved my arms and he came and said, yeah, what's going on? And I explained and he talked to her and said, all right, thanks for staying, you know, on your way. Yeah. But I had a lot of good vibes that day, knowing that I had done something to help somebody out that needed a hand. And and then again, maybe she will now have a, a nicer reason to think positively about someone on a motorcycle because somebody stopped to help her out. Right, right. Well, certainly, I know you've said that you've ridden in all sorts of conditions and that, you know, there's uh, there's no such thing as bad weather, but just bad weather for the gear that you're wearing or something like that is that, you know, you when people see motorcyclists in those conditions, they think something must be wrong with you if you're riding. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't even like driving in this rainstorm and I'm get and I'm, I'm warm and dry in my car. So, yeah. So that's the that's part of the perception of motorcyclists. Wow. I was working on a test for the Michelin uh, Road 6 GT tires, and uh, I wanted to get a couple of good rides in before winter set in here in New England. And there was a, a wicked rainstorm. as a cell that was coming through. It wasn't thunder and lightning, just hard rain. So you know, I just told my wife, hey, I'm going out for a ride. And she gives me the, the look that she kind of gives me sometimes. She goes, yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> um, but I went out for a ride down into the next town over the mountain and back. And I wanted to see how the, the tires performed in this really heavy rain. And it was pouring buckets. And I stopped in the, the bank parking lot in town because I wanted to get a couple of pictures. And some guy pulled up next to me and wanted to know, what are you doing out in this? And I said, well, actually, I'm testing some some new motorcycle tires that are supposed to perform really well in, in the rain. And he looked at me through the, the window of his SUV. He said, man, that's nuts. Go home. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm going to go there fairly soon, but you know, I'm going to take a long way. Yeah. You do run into people that just can't figure out why you would even consider riding in the rain or on a cold day. You know, I, I wear heated gear because in New England, the weather is often cold. Right. Um, but you can get out on, on beautiful roads early in the morning. And you put on the heated gear and it keeps you warm and that keeps you safe because your fingers aren't getting cold. Your core is staying warm, too. It means you can ride uh, when a lot of other people don't bother when almost nobody's out. It's great riding sometimes just when it's it's cold like that. And the people will see you in the gas station or you, know, you pull into a, to a diner to have some breakfast and someone sees that you're in motorcycle gears. You didn't ride here on a motorcycle, did you? Said, yeah, actually, I, I left about three hours ago. I'm just going to stop to get breakfast now. You rode three hours to get breakfast in this home. So yeah, I'm hoping the coffee's hot. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say, you know, after riding in those conditions, yeah, a hot cup of coffee never tastes so good than when you've come in cold and wet off the road or, you know, so. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to go back to is, uh, again, you're talking about uh, contributing stories. You've written over 100 articles for Rider Magazine. That's that's a that's a heck of a track record. Uh, you mentioned briefly that you take your, your, your uh, DSLR camera with you. You've got a long lens. Um, and you also mentioned that, yes, today's uh, uh, smartphones have pretty remarkable camera capabilities. Some of them have multiple lenses. So that's one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit is that for something like Rider Magazine, part of the it's essential to have good photography to go in a story. You know, if you write an observational essay, we might be able to have a little one page editorial or something like that. But for a travel story, we really you know, we have a, a map created. We have photography that goes with it that really sort of gives people a visual component. Are you trained as a photographer? Uh, well, I took a class in uh, in college that was a, a photojournalism class. So I, I guess I have training in that respect. My dad wrote articles when I was growing up, a lot of them about graveyards. And he would share with me the tricks that he had you know, with photographs. So I, I learned how to take photographs before 
there were automatic exposures. So you'd have to set the aperture and set the shutter speed. And when he bought a new camera, I'd get his old camera. So um, I've always had an interest in photography. I love taking pictures of dogs. Um, I've got more pictures of dogs than probably anything. <laughs> um, and, uh, but taking pictures of things for a motorcycle magazine that it presents certain challenges, like uh, a black motorcycle is really hard to get to show up well. So if you are taking pictures of a black motorcycle, it's really important to make sure that you have really good lighting. Um, I did a story on the Pacific Northwest where I was riding Honda Super Blackbird and it was black. So it was a real challenge at times. Uh, when the light was good, I would find a way to park with a decent background with a bike tilted over on the side stand, leaving the, the high side in the sun. And that was one of the, the ways I could get a decent shot. I've always thought that the front end of a motorcycle is much more attractive than the rear end. Occasionally, the backside is nice. The backside of the bike might indicate that you're going in a particular direction. Right. There can be something to it. But uh, if you're trying to make the bike look nice, uh, the high side and the front side typically make more sense. It's nice to to vary the kinds of images that you take to some where the, the bike is obviously the focus of the, the photograph is the subject of it, but other places where the bike is just uh, one little part of it. Sometimes I like to do things like get up on a, on a hill somewhere and get my friend, my friend, Steve FD Bulu is, is really great at this. He goes on a lot of trips with me because we just like to ride together. And I'll say, Hey Steve, I want to get a shot of that curve there. Would you mind? Yeah, yeah I understand. I understand. <laughs> So I'll, I'll go set up somewhere and he'll just go back and he'll ride back and forth a few times. And he knows to uh, try to set it up so that there's no cars in front of him or behind him. So you just see the bike and the area that he's in. But you want to look not only at the at the bike, but look at the, the kind of scenery that the bike is in, uh, right. the kind of environment that you're in. And that helps to tell the story. And they say a story or a picture is worth a thousand words. You really can tell a lot with good pictures. And it's important to really, you know, don't just take snapshots. Think about what is in the background. Can you change the angle of the picture so you don't have those telephone poles in the background? Or can you climb up on top of the guardrail um, and get a downward perspective? Or can you put the camera on the ground to get an upward perspective? And all those things change the way a photograph looks. And it can really make the difference between what this looks like a snapshot and what looks like a nice photograph. Right. So I try to take a lot of those things into consideration. And these days, you don't have to worry about film. Now, I started in the film era where you really plan photographs because if you had a roll of 36 images, I mean, you had 36 shots and then it was done. And if you didn't have any extra film, you had 36. Now, you, know, you can do hundreds and hundreds. So I take a lot more pictures and ever get submitted for a story. But yeah, so to, to go back to your question, yeah, I did have some training but doesn't require a whole lot of training. And there are plenty of online tutorials about how to take better pictures. And if somebody is considering um, submitting stories to writer, you could certainly go on YouTube and find some great suggestions for how to, to take better pictures. A lot of the things would just be the things that we've been discussing about considering the composition of the, the picture, what, what's in it and what can you not have in it to make it look better. I was actually talking to a friend the other day about composition. I did a story on Down East Maine and in the town, I think it's called New Portland, um, there's a tree that's been carved with a chainsaw. And it's been carved into what looks like a lobster claw. And it was actually painted red and white, so it looks like a boiled lobster claw. And I saw that riding through the town and just thought, 
oh my goodness, what an awesome image that is. How can I get a picture? I was riding a red motorcycle. So how can I have my red motorcycle next to this lobster claw sculpture? And it took me probably an hour to figure out how to get my bike parked in a place where it wasn't going to fall over. Right. And where I could get a shot that didn't have the house that was next door to which you didn't want in the photograph. It just wasn't anything memorable. And then I waited for some sun to come out because when the sun was behind the clouds, you just didn't have the, the brightness. You can try to improve the exposure a little bit on a, on a picture, but it's much nicer when you used to have good light to begin with. Right. So you need to be patient. You need to kind of approach it with a, uh, with a craftsman perspective that says, I want to find a way to make this image look as good as I can. But that's half the fun for me. Sometimes you just want to get off the bike and relax for a little bit. And one of the ways you can do it is to take a bunch of pictures while you're doing it. Sure. Well, I mean, it's you certainly if you're riding by yourself, you have more time without having friends or, you know, a spouse or something like that is so maybe impatient or something with you. Is that I uh, 100% agree that, you know, just taking a little bit of time to to move the bikes around to a better location to where they're away from some cars or away from a distracting background. Or if you have multiple bikes is kind of line them up a little bit where you can see them pretty well. Mm -hmm. And so a little bit of extra effort goes a long way. I will also say that if if something catches your eye that you think you want to take a photo of, stop and take the photo. Like I've, Absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I've gone down the road and then 50 miles later, I'm like, man, I really should have stopped to take a photo of that. That was very cool. You're talking about this lobster claw. Like I remember that from your, from your story. Like if you had ridden and didn't go back or you didn't take that photo and clearly you put a lot of time into setting that photo up, but you probably would have regretted it the rest of the trip. So yeah, stop, be patient, think ahead, be situationally aware. Uh, and so like you had suggested is looking for a different sort of perspective. Like if you can stand up on a rock or or a picnic table or something, and you can get more of the road rather than the road maybe appearing kind of flat, even if there's a curve in it. If you can get up above, you can kind of maybe get the shape of the road as well. Right. Also, one of the things I like to do to, to get the, the shape of the road or, or to get somebody to appreciate that it is a road is to have either the shoulder edge line or the stripe in the middle of the road be the border at the bottom of the photograph. Yeah. Um, exactly. That's a that's a nice way to gives the I think it's a speed uh, thought there's a little bit of motion in a photograph even though there's obviously it's a still photograph little things like that how do you how do you frame the image um the, the subject of the the picture might be say it's a motorcycle doesn't mean it needs to be in the middle it can be off to one side it can be in a corner it can be actually very small in the picture you can zoom way out on something or, or walk way far away um, I've got a picture from the Moonshine Lunch Run where I wanted to have people appreciate that the Moonshine store is really in a cornfield and it's in the middle of nowhere. But I wanted also to get people to appreciate how many bikes there are there. So I walked way out into a cornfield and this is before they plowed the field. So it was actually pretty hard. But I probably walked five minutes out into the cornfield before I turned around. And you could see all the bikes lined up on these. It's, a, it's at a crossroads. And you could see all the bikes lined up coming one way, coming the other direction. <laughs> and the store itself, which was the subject of, the, of that picture, was really quite small. And even the bikes were small. What was really big was the expanse of the cornfield that I was in. Yeah. Um, so taking 
the time to walk to a place where the perspective makes for a good photograph. That's what made that picture. Right. Well, and I also want to just one of the probably most important things is that, again, if people are taking photos with a smartphone, that's fine. Most of them do high resolution. They are the, the settings are typically automatic. Uh, they deal with uh, low light fairly well if you hold the camera steadily. But one is that um, if, if your camera doesn't have if your smartphone doesn't have multiple lenses, like I have an iPhone 12 that has a 1x, 2x and a 0.5x. And so do not use the uh, digital zoom component. Only use right. like the basically whatever the default lens is. Don't because digital zoom is basically uh, it uses an algorithm and it basically degrades the quality of the photo. So don't you can go to 10x don't because it'll make for a very uh, low quality, low resolution photo. And also, like I said, because uh, smartphones are very we can take a million photos. It's easy to sort of like get in the mindset of like, I'm just going to stop and grab a quick snap is, you know, people have their thumb covering part of the lens. They're in a rush. Just take a breath, think about it. And then, you know, it can make all the difference in a photograph. And like you said, take three or four different perspectives of a particular scene or setup, because sometimes, as you said, whether you walk five minutes into a cornfield or you just walk, you know, just, uh, you know, 10 feet in the other direction, all of a sudden something may open up, you get rid of something distracting in the background, you know, so photography is very important. You do not have to be a pro. You just have to be thinking about what you're doing. I think that's probably the most important thing. I mean, cell phones, I'll just admit to it right now. I just did an entire trip Edelweiss tour in Greece and I shot all of my photos with an iPhone because with a burst mode, I could get riding photos where people going by. Now it's not pro level, doesn't get the blur and the wheels and so forth, but I was able to get everything I needed and have three different lenses and my cell phone without the uh, difficulty of dealing with a DSLR and a long lens. So it feels like cheating a little bit and is the quality as high as a, as a pro level camera, but I'm also not a pro shooter. So yeah, those well, are just some tips. For what it's worth, Greg, I've done a few stories with nothing but my my Samsung phone. The same thing. I've got the the 0.5, the the 1x, and the 2x lens, and it it's amazing what you can do with those. Yeah, and it, the fact that it's in your pocket or in your tank bag, it's it's right there. It uh, makes makes for some great shots. So Scott, when we were talking about uh, photography, you mentioned the moonshine lunch run, and I know you've written uh, a few stories in the past for Ryder about that. I always thought those were really fascinating. Could you kind of, I know they, that those runs aren't that moonshine lunch run. Does it still go on? I know that the founder is no longer, uh, he had passed away. Can you give us a little background on that? Well, it, it started just uh, with Terry Hammond, who was a farmer and a motorcycle guy wanting to get together at the beginning of the, of the farming season. I mean, his friends would be getting their bikes out to go ride to start their season, but he would be on a tractor and he would be on a tractor, you know, 16 hours a day. And uh, basically it would be in July when his crops were in, there wasn't anything else he could do. He would get up and he would leave South or Eastern Illinois and he would usually go West, go to Utah or Colorado or California somewhere. And he decided one year, you know what, I should just, I want to get together with some people before this all starts. And he said, I'm going to be at the moonshine store, which is near where he lived. And anybody that wants to, to show up, you know, I'm buying lunch. And a couple guys showed up and he bought him lunch and he had to have friends that were new friends because he never met these guys before. They just sort of trusted that this was an interesting idea. One of them rode from Kentucky, and I think the other from Tennessee. And um, the next year, the guy from Tennessee brought a bunch of people with him and it just kind of grew. And Terry realized that, hey, there's a, here's a chance. Maybe we can raise some money for charity. And it just kind of grew from there year after year. I was invited to go a couple of times and I... I didn't go because of, why would I want to go to southeastern Illinois? The roads are all flat. It's it's just it's farm country. It's just not really anything. Oh, you don't really understand. And I said, hey, I guess I don't. 
But uh, my friend Steve um, was the one that said, you really got to talk to Terry. And as it turned out, Terry Hammond and I each had two motorcycles. And at the time, we each had a Honda ST 1300 and a Kawasaki 650 Versus. So we knew each other from two different online forums. And we became friends that way. He was copying all my my farkles that I do to the, the bikes. And so we had that informal connection. And my friend Steve's like, hey, why don't you let uh, why don't you let Bones write an article for you about moonshine? Because apparently he Terry had gotten calls from some of the magazines in California about writing a story about. It. He said, Great, get on your bike and ride out here, have a hamburger. And apparently nobody wanted to do that. So he <laughs> said, Well, you know, come out here and I'll give you the story. But otherwise, I gotta get back to farming. So when I pitched him on that idea, I said, Hey, I'd, I'd like to be the one that writes the story. I said, I would love it. Come on out and we'll have a hamburger and then we'll talk. And it was one of the greatest interviews I ever did. What a character he was. But basically people came from all over, certainly all over the U.S., a bunch of Canadian provinces. Some people came from overseas once it became a little more well-known. And um, one guy flew in from Scotland and um, ended up borrowing a bike from somebody he met on the internet. And they rode up together to, and it's basically just to get a hamburger. That time of year uh, in, in April, the weather is usually un- unpredictable at best. Uh, there were times when it was in the 90s and just screaming hot. There were times when it was snowing. There were times certainly when there was lots of rain. Uh, we hunkered down a couple of times from bad thunderstorms. There were tornadoes that went within maybe 10 miles of us one time. It was always a lot of effort to get to moonshine. And so you start doing that and you see all these other people and, and meet them there that are also having to make this great effort just to go have a hamburger with a bunch of other people that are willing to do the same thing. That was a, was a great experience. It was a, an important part of me becoming a long distance rider. This when I did my first iron butt ride was going to moonshine, that sort of thing. Met some great people that are very close friends. You know, I'm going to somebody's wedding uh, who I, uh, his daughter's wedding that uh, is somebody I met from moonshine. It was a great time. Terry died you know, unexpectedly, had a, had a heart attack. And unfortunately that was the end of him. But his good friend, Jason, wanted to keep things going. And he did that for a number of years and a lot of us tried to help him out. And eventually it just, uh, it kind of wasn't the same anymore. I think a lot of, of great events kind of migrate and evolve and they aren't exactly the way they were. Plus one of the members of the Tuttle family, no relation to Mark Tuttle, by the way, that owned the, the Moonshine store. One of the sons died. And so a number of things kind of conspired to say, okay, maybe it's time that uh, this doesn't happen anymore. So it happened one more time and uh, a bunch of us went this one last time had a, a wonderful time doing it. So does it happen anymore? Not in an organized manner, but uh, every so often I get notes from people or I see on, on the various forums that I am part of that, hey, you know, a bunch of us went out to, to Moonshine and had a Moonburger last Saturday. It was really great. And people will <laughs> start to reminisce about, about all the things that happened to them during their moonshine experiences. Interesting. I, that sounds like it was a cool event when the center held and it was still, and it held together. But then like I say, sometimes things just have a shelf life and, and, and uh, people, an event like that doesn't continue. So you've ridden, I mean, I know you've ridden all over the U S um, you've ridden in, in Canada. I mean um, you've written stories about a lot of different places in October, you are going on Adriatic moto tours, uh, Sardinia and Corsica tour. Have you ridden in Europe or overseas before? No, no. I I spent a lot of time in Europe in graduate school, and I've been to probably fifteen countries over there. I got to drive uh, a nice uh, Golf GTI on uh, some switchback roads in Switzerland. That was awesome. And I used to rent a a one liter Austin Mini. Uh, which was a very slow but very nice handling car. And we'd take that down to the beach in, in England. 
but I never rode a motorcycle in all those times I was in, in Europe. So this is something I'm really looking forward to. The lay of the land in Corsica and Sardinia is, I think, what really appealed to me. It's, it combines ocean and really craggy mountains. And my love of motorcycling really comes down to twisty, windy roads. I, if you look at my articles over the span of them, you'll see that there's one thing that tends to tie things together. And that's that I am looking for roads that twist and wind. Even on the way to Moonshine, I would stop in Southeast Ohio because there's twisty, windy roads there. Right. But I'm, I'm really stoked to uh, be able to go to these two islands. The, you know, I've, I've been to France and I've been to Italy, but uh, these two islands have their own uh, unique culture that are subsets of, of French and Italian culture. So that makes the trip especially appealing. I, I love to just ride a motorcycle, but I also like to travel and to tour. And to me, that means learning something about the history of the place you're going to go and learning about the culture and what, what people there think and what they do and maybe what they think and do that's different than anything that I've ever thought and done. Sure, I, it's, it's a way to, I think, to, just to live a, a richer life by being exposed to all these other ways of doing things. And one of the things that I'm especially excited about Corsica and Sardinia is that it happens in October. So based on my knowledge of Mediterranean, the weather is still beautiful. It's not as hot as it would be in the summertime. And it's past the time of prime vacation season. Right. So uh, when, when Europeans kind of all take vacation in August, it's past that. And when Americans and a lot of other travelers to Europe come in the summertime, well, their kids are probably back in school because it's after the end of the, of the summer. So that tends to mean that you have uh, fewer people on the island that are touristing like you are, which means fewer cars, fewer buses, fewer caravans. And that should make for a really exciting riding experience. Absolutely. I've ridden around Sicily. I've only just ridden a, a short portion of the southern part of Sardinia. I was there on a Ducati launch. But, you know, these islands in the Mediterranean, they're west of Italy. Uh, like I said, Sardinia is a region of Italy. Corsica, they're very close together. They're kind of stacked on top of each other. But Corsica is a region of France. You know, they are these, you know, it's almost like a, a mountain was just dropped into the sea. Adriatic Motor Tours are based in Slovenia, but they do tours all over the Alps and, and Europe. I did a tour uh, with them in the Balkans, which was a fantastic tour. Uh, the thing, like you said, is that from what I've read about Corsica and Sardinia, yeah, they're, th this is actually a pretty challenging tour in terms of it. you've got to be a skilled rider to uh, ride a lot. A lot of switchbacks and challenging roads. You're going to be along the coast, but you're going to be up in the mountains. That's so going to be some great scenery, some great food. So since you've not ridden overseas, I know that that's one thing that some people are a little bit hesitant. You know, I think we're beyond the worst of the COVID era. You know, uh, people with the get vaccinated, get boosted, whatever they can do. There's people who still can wear masks on planes. It's not required in some areas, but precautions are, are taken. And then for the tours themselves, you know, you're, are you going to be riding a B? I know you own a BMW R1200RT as well as an F650GS. Are you renting a similar motorcycle to the one you own? Or are you getting something different? Well, I am getting a BMW because that's the largest choices available through this tour. Uh, but I did want to get something I hadn't ridden just to try something different. So I'm getting an F900XR. Cool. Nice. So it's got a bit more muffins than my GS has, but it's also got more high-end brakes and suspension components. So it'll be more of a handling machine. And it's an all-paved tour, so I don't need to worry about GS capabilities. And it seemed like the best bike, in my estimation, for the kinds of riding that uh, we'll be doing there. 
Right. So you mentioned the weather. You're going to be there in the fall. That is a great shoulder season where you're kind of away from most of the tourists and, and hopefully the worst of the heat. You ride in a lot of different kinds of weather living in uh, New England. You know, yeah, the recommendation would definitely be uh, dress for a range of, of weather conditions. Like whatever gear that you wear should be, if it's not mesh, should definitely be well ventilated. You should be able to open up some vents because you're likely to run into some heat even in October. But the weather can be variable and it, you should be prepared for rain. So if you don't have a Gore-Tex type uh, suit, then definitely bringing rain gear is important. You had asked, I think, uh, via email about packing because I've flown to Europe many times for press launches and things. Is that if if you're on kind of a coach ticket, if you're on a coach ticket, you typically get one checked bag and then you get a carry on and a personal item. So your checked bag is typically limited to 50 pounds. Most gear bags that are kind of dedicated for kind of motorcycle gear, those things have a pretty heavy frame to them and they can weigh 15 pounds with nothing in them. So you can actually get a pretty lightweight duffel. I'll even send you a a link to the one that I bought, but it actually has some wheels, but it's actually a very lightweight. It's a, it's got a, it's a high capacity duffel. Uh, it's it got a very durable, uh, waterproof material, but it only weighs, I think, four pounds by itself. So you have a bag yeah, that'll think of the tear weight. That's a good idea. Yeah. So the 40, 46 pounds means that, you know, cause if you think about it, if you put your boots in there, you put your riding jacket, your riding pants, um, if you've got a rain suit and so forth, bring two pairs of gloves, you know, like a, a lightweight pair and maybe a, a cold or, or waterproof pair of gloves. But once you put your riding gear in there, then you, once you add your clothing and so forth, you're, you're going to be pretty close to the weight limit. And you also want to allow maybe if, it, if you have a 50 pound weight limit, maybe don't go more than about 45 cause you may want to buy uh, some souvenirs or something or something you find and want to be able to bring it home. What I would recommend. Well, yeah, for your wife, your (laughs) daughter, (laughs) but bring your helmet in its own bag and carry it on the plane. Because if for some reason, one is if you can fly in a day early for a a European trip, uh, so you can at least have a day to kind of get acclimated. You'll be a little bit jet lagged, uh, whatever city you're flying into, maybe you can get a day of sightseeing. So arriving a day earlier than the tour starts, rather than arriving the day in which you'll probably have the ride briefing is the night before the, the riding starts an extra day, maybe two is, is, is helpful. Part of the reason why that's an advantage is if there's a delay with your luggage, it's typically going to catch up with you within 24 hours. So you get an extra day there. The reason I suggest bringing your helmet on as a carry-on and therefore it's always with you. If for some reason your bag gets lost, replacing a helmet that's your size and that you like is over in Europe might be hard to do. You might be able to come up with some riding gear at a, at a shop or something. It's not something you would want to do, but you can ride in a lot of conditions, but having your own helmet with you, maybe your gloves in stuffed inside the helmet, use that as a carry-on and then maybe a backpack with some reading material and a change of clothes or something. Again, just in case these days having luggage loss is pretty rare, but it still happens. And so, you know, if you are on a motorcycle tour and you don't have riding gear, you can't ride. So you need to have some contingency plans for that. So, yeah. Yeah. I did carry my helmet on a trip once to Seattle and the I think it was a new TSA agent that uh, wondered why I was carrying a motorcycle helmet and said, well, where are you going with that? And I said, well, I'm meeting a friend and we're going to go to British Columbia. And I don't know, maybe he didn't know where British Columbia was, but he decided that my answer justified a complete uh, look through of everything that I was uh, carrying (laughs) in great detail. 
Yeah. But uh, yeah, having it on board, that was, I had the same kind of thinking that I don't want to not have my helmet. Right. Right. Cause again, getting a helmet of the proper type and size, uh, if you have to go to a motorcycle shop, I mean, there's motorcycle shops all over the place in Europe cause there's a lot of motorcyclists, but you could get probably an inexpensive pair a jacket and pair of riding pants or jeans, but replacing helmets, you know, high quality helmets are expensive. If you got one that you like, you're also going to be wearing it for, I think your tours, it's, it's a, at least a week. And so yeah. you're going to be wearing that helmet all day, every day. You don't really want to break in a helmet that you don't like, or, you know, for some reason it doesn't end up fitting well. So, Hey man, I'm actually, I'm quite envious of you going on this particular tour. Like I said, I've just touched the small, the Southern coast of Sardinia, uh, those islands, everything I've heard that it's going to be fantastic riding. I know Adriatic Motor Tours uh, puts together a great tour. They take care of folks really well. I imagine there's still slots on that tour. We'll include a link to it. If anybody's interested in riding with Scott over in uh, Corsican Sardinia, uh, we'll have a link to this uh, tour. So if you want to, there would still be time to sign up and, and get your tickets and so forth, because it's going to be, I think it starts October 15th. So there's still a few months. So yeah. So I'm excited for you. Anything else about that tour that uh, you want to share with anybody? Well, it's uh, going to be the twisty windy heaven that I'm looking forward to. I think the title they gave to the trip is Riders, or Riders Paradise. Yeah. And it, that, that appealed to me right away. And um, in addition to the fact that it's a beautiful part of the world by all uh, descriptions, it's it's twisty, windy roads that that's the stuff that I love best. So why not go someplace where those kinds of roads are in abundance and where all the the routes and places that you stay, it's it's all vetted. So you don't have to do any of the work. All you have to do is go enjoy yourself. Yeah, you honestly, you can just pack your gear and show up. I mean, they'll send you a tour booklet and a map and stuff. But I even said that I've been on enough tours now that I often don't even look at that stuff. I want the tour to be a surprise. I mean, that stuff is available to, and they give you a briefing every day and give you an overview of what you're going to get into. But I have to say for people that, you know, there's obviously fantastic riding all over the United States, you know, North America, um, but riding in Europe, it's, it's quite different. It's not that it's better or worse. It's just that motorcycling culture is, is more ingrained into European culture that the, I mean, if you think about some of the top MotoGP riders that come from Spain and Italy and so forth, there are motorcycles and scooters everywhere. It's uh, car drivers are more accommodating of motorcycles. There's much more of a sort of, like you were saying at the beginning of our interview that, you know, motorcycles are only 3% of the motorized public in the United States. We're still a very small minority. We're still sort of, uh, some people don't really know how to deal with motorcycles. In Europe, they're embraced in a way that is just, it's kind of refreshing. You just don't feel quite as odd or unusual. And then of course, like I said, riding new roads and new places is is exciting. It's it's part of the fun and going on a tour like that. So well, I'm psyched for it and gonna have a great time. And thanks for those uh, those tips. The the lightweight uh, duffel makes perfect sense. Yeah, that that makes that makes a big difference. Well, hey Scott, I mean, you know, it's been a pleasure to work with you over the years. I know you've worked much longer with Mark Tuttle. I know I can speak for him as an editor that you know you send us uh, stories that are like I said, you've got. A, a good narrative uh, with all of your stories. You've got a good hook. Your stories are clean. So again, just as a little final tip for people that are considering submitting a story to, to a motorcycle magazine, whether it's Rider or somewhere else is 
take the time to write your story and then to rewrite it, maybe have somebody else read it is, is it really the craft of writing? You don't have to be a professional, but just really put as much effort as you can into it so that your story, your voice comes through. And then we'll, of course, help you get it, uh, you know, in publishable shape, but don't send us a first draft. Don't send us something that's kind of half-baked because uh, it's more likely to get rejected or if it's accepted, it makes a lot of work for us. But it's been a pleasure reading your work over the years, you know, having you submit stuff. I mean, we talked about your dead record story, Muriel's Last Ride, a number of other ones. I know you just submitted us a story about Southeastern Ohio. I know readers love reading your stuff because you've got good photographs, you tell a good story. So thanks for being part of the writer family. Well, like I said, I I was a, a customer long before I became uh, a contributor. It just, uh, I had this epiphany one day that I should be writing for this magazine that it's still my favorite magazine. That That's quite, quite the case. Um, so I, I enjoy doing it. That's great. Well, I, I, I know we've only met in person one time. You came out for uh, we had a 30th anniversary party for Mark Tuttle when he was uh, his 30th year as editor in chief. And you flew out from Massachusetts to California to attend that party. Then you and I got to go ride a couple of days. And that was, yeah, that that was, was a lot of fun. fun. Yeah, well, we had a great time. And uh, that was my introduction to uh, splitting lanes. <laughs> so, uh, that doesn't happen here in the East, uh, certainly not in New England. But I remember you saying at a stop, hey, we're going to be going on a section of uh, the Pacific Coast Highway. And if you're comfortable, we'll split lanes. And I said, OK, you lead on. I'll, I'll follow your lead. And I was really very pleasantly surprised at how well it works. Yeah. It, 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 there's a certain logic to it that once you've done it a couple of times, oh, that's how it works. And yeah. you follow somebody like I was following you that, that does it regularly. And it, it made all the sense in the world. I, I hope more states will be willing to consider um, allowing that in their traffic laws because it, it it works. Yeah, there's I think uh, was it Arizona just became the fourth state to pass some sort of lane splitting legislation. So, yeah, it's it's definitely picking up steam that all four states are out here in, in the West, but uh, it really helps with traffic congestion. It's actually safer for motorcyclists. Uh, but so, hey, we've only ridden once here in California, but I. Yeah, don't get out to your neck of the woods that often. Sometimes uh, go f- out there for a Maricade. So if I'm going to hopefully go next year, that's in early June. Maybe I can connect with you and we go ride. You show me some of your favorite roads in Massachusetts. Yeah, well, if you're in Maricade, you'll be in Adirondacks, Catskills, uh, Hudson Valley. There's some yeah. amazing roads there. Yeah. And it doesn't take much effort to, to get away from the population centers. A lot of people have a misconception about the east that it's congested. And sure, there's there's Boston and New York and Philly and Washington, and those are all very congested areas. But it doesn't take much to get away from that. And because roads have been in existence in this part of the world for so much longer than motorized traffic, there are so many roads. I've got a friend from Arizona that that comes out to New England precisely because there are so many roads. He can start in one place and have a destination in another place and never have to take the same road twice um, in a week because he can just pick a different road because there are so many options. I'd be glad to show you some of my neck of the woods here. Absolutely. All right, cool. Sounds like fun. We'll go out for some pie. That, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Scott. And for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, I'm Greg Drevenstead. Thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down. If you've enjoyed listening to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, please subscribe, leave us a positive rating, and tell your friends. We also encourage you to visit writermagazine.com, where you can get the latest in motorcycle news and reviews and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to print and digital editions of Writer Magazine, which is published 12 times a year. Thanks again for listening. 